I remember thinking like, what am I doing here? Okay, this is not what I thought science was. I don't wanna, you know, play games with, with trying to finesse accounts by, you know, weaving stories about how A could be true, even though it's only showing in the data. And I certainly don't want to add paragraphs that seem to come out of nowhere just so I can get my paper published and I can, you know, be successful in the field. Welcome to Cognitive Revolution. I'm Cody Commerce, and this is my show about the personal side of the intellectual journey. So let's get straight into things this week. Uh, I'm very excited to share this interview uh, with, with a very special guest. She uh, is a prolific cognitive scientist studying, uh, who studied cognitive development. Her most famous book, perhaps, is co-authored with Esther Thielen called A Dynamic Systems Approach to Development. Uh, she also has pioneered research on shape bias, which is children's tendency to generalize a new concrete now on the basis of the shape of the object. Uh, she's won more an awards than it would be prudent to name here, but uh, perhaps the foremost among them are the Rimmel Hart Prize, which is the highest prize in cognitive science, uh, and she is also a William James Fellow of the uh, American Psychological Association. She is a professor of psychology and cognitive science at Indiana University. Um, I'm very excited to introduce to you Linda B. Smith. All right, so Linda, uh, you've won the uh, Rummel Hart Prize, which is the highest honor in cognitive science, and you uh, recently won the Lifetime Achievement Prize from the American Psychological Association, making you a uh, William James Fellow. And so the main problem that I see you having in the near future is that in order to keep getting these awards, they're going to have to mint some new founding figures of the field to name them after. So uh, thanks for taking the time to talk to me today. I'm looking forward to this. Well, thank you for having me. I'm quite sure that I'm done getting awards as I have been. <laughs> I have had a long career and I'm not thinking of stopping, although I have a, a close friend who says to me continually, these are lifetime achievement awards. That means you should stop. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm, I, I think this stopping. is... <laughs> this is where you get to the, um, you know, like the uh, the interest bearing part of your career, where you're, where you, where you get to now you now you rack up all of the lifetime achievements for for all of the the unacknowledged work you previously got in. So I th I have a feeling you're wrong about your 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 forecast there, but um. yeah. Well, no, I'm I'm I am not stopping, <laughs> and I'm I also don't feel like I'm finishing up. I mean, we can talk yeah. about my career, but yep. Things that I have cared a great deal about, like just how the role of environment shapes development and how developing babies shape the environment has um, just new power in computing and in wearable sensors has absolutely changed the ability to answer those questions. So despite absolutely. having cared about them throughout my career, I now actually can, I'm not alone, other people are doing it too, but one can really now go after those questions, and I'm, I'm in love with the kind of research that I'm doing right now. So we'll get into some of those content questions a little bit later on, and so maybe to start off with, um, so we can compare it to where you've been, can you give us a picture of, of what your average day looks like now and how you spend your time and, and what that looks like for you? 
Yes. So I um, I typically uh, spend the morning at home. I, I get up and I exercise every morning at 6 a.m. And then I come back here and uh, read the newspaper. And then I usually work from about 7.30 to noon at home. Um, writing or doing whatever is most important to me. I have learned over time that um, the way the, the way I can, um, the way I think, um, for me, the best way to really understand something and have new insights and make progress um, on scientific questions is to work daily and sort of repeatedly on the same thing, not jump around. So I really try to hold my mornings to that. Then I go into school and I'm in the lab most of the afternoon or um, meeting with people. Um, research related and so that's my typical day <laughs> work day at any rate yeah so it sounds like you kind of dedicate the mornings to the the most important things that you have to get done and think about and then it's a little bit more open-ended in the afternoon whether that's uh helping out students and that sort of stuff or right. uh you know sort of doing uh non-essential uh stuff and you know everything that comes up so is there, has that morning block changed for you a lot over your career? Does that uh, always look approximately the same or is that sort of shifted a lot over time? It's approximately the same in that um, when I was a young assistant professor, I, with minimal responsibilities other than, you know, my own work, um, I've always been a morning person. I would just get up and go in early. And then I worked in school because, you know, back in the day, 1977, you had typewriters and secretaries and there was no such thing as working away from <laughs> working away from your office. But I would go in and I had a closed door policy till about 11 a.m. So I did that. And um, then once I had children, my husband and I switched off time and I used to I should have been exercising. But what I did instead was I used to go into my office at 6 a.m. so that I could leave earlier in the day. I found it very effective to work early in the morning, and now it's deeply entrenched. Certainly, that exercise routine is, is incredibly difficult to incorporate into one's daily routine. Do you think that that has played a big part in your sustained focus and energy and productivity over time? You know, actually, I do. So I have been, um, I started exercising early in the morning. Um, How early are we talking? Pardon? How early are we talking? I I am usually at the... At, at the gym at quarter of six. Wow, wow. And I have been doing that for over 25 years. And before that, I used to exercise it in the evening. But um, the uh, but it. I'm not a young person. I don't know if I want you. You should put this on here. But you know, I'm 68 years old, and um, I think being fit is actually essential to uh, carrying on. So. Yeah, that's really inspiring. And don't worry, we we can we can bleep out any mention of your age or any um, you know dates that will put you in a you know whatever. It's all public, it's all public knowledge. <laughs> I'm shocked when I say it out loud. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um, anyway, okay, so let's let's uh, sort of dive into uh, earlier into when you uh, you know sort of started off in this career. How, how did you get on to the grad school path? And especially, I'm interested in a, in a time when I imagine uh, that 
most of your colleagues were predominantly male. How did how did all that sort of play out for you? When did you when did you know that was what you wanted to do? Well, so I started out in engineering as an undergrad my freshman year, and that was a case of I began at Northeastern University in Boston, and that was a case of um, I grew up in New England, and that was a case of there being um, I think there were seven women in a freshman class of seven hundred male engineers. It was Northeastern's a principally engineering kind of school. And that was very, very hard. And um, so I transferred to the University of Wisconsin-Madison, left there. I did not have a good experience. You know, it was just too constraining and too, everybody knew who you were. It was very, um, I hadn't understood what it meant to be one of seven where, you know, a whole lecture hall of physics, everybody knew your name and could catcall you no matter what. Okay. So, um, by name. So I transferred to the University of Wisconsin-Madison and I entered there as a math major because I didn't know what else to do. And um, I took my first psychology course and fell in love with it. So I only had a two-year undergraduate degree in psychology and I fell in love with psychology through a course in psychophysics. <laughs> Not the clinical stuff like most people, but psychophysics. I just loved it. And um, it seemed like science, but interesting. And of course it was a much more mixed group of people um, than engineering was in those days. Um, and so that's where I began. And, um, you know, I went to graduate school not the way people do now, only because it seemed like, why not is the next step? I like going to school. I was good at school. I've been going to school my whole life. Why stop? Um, so I entered. Um, people now are so much more knowledgeable and so much more ambitious. and. I was just clueless. It was something to do. So I applied to graduate school and I went. I got more ambitious in graduate school. I got a deeper understanding about the field and a deeper understanding of how you could really make a difference. But when I went to graduate school, I did not know. So before we get into your grad school experience, uh, that's pretty interesting that you were drawn to engineering uh, and these highly technical disciplines, then of course falling in love with psychophysics. Um, that, you know, uh, what I imagine at the time was closer to an engineering side of, of psychology. Uh, what is it, uh, you know, sort of in your early experiences or about the way that your mind works uh, that, that you think draws you to, to engineering and, and, and made you think originally it was a good idea to, to pursue that sort of thing? Well, I think um, I really like understanding and I don't mean to be hard on some parts of psychology, but William James said in his book, Principles of Psychology, um, there's a lovely passage that you could probably find if you searched it, where he's talking about the problem, the word concept. And the idea that he was trying to write about is how we fool ourselves by naming things. And I have never really liked the idea that we would, you know, that children do something, you know, they help somebody else because they have an innate moral understanding. Well, innate moral understanding is three words, all of them vague, okay? That doesn't mean it's wrong, but it just is not satisfying to me. The kinds of things that are satisfying to me is when you understand them well, and you can specify exactly what you mean. And the best way to specify exactly what you mean is through a computational model or through mathematics. Now, often, it is the case, certainly, I have things I want to say, 
that I don't understand well enough to specify mathematically. But that's always the goal. The goal is to understand well enough that you can actually precisely say what you mean, not little words that we fool ourselves. I think we're prone to fooling ourselves that we think we understand something when we don't, sort of by just labeling it with words. Very interesting. So let's let's sort of get into when you went to graduate school, like you said, there was a little bit of naivety in there. And uh, what did you sort of struggle with initially? What was, uh, you know, what, what worked well for you and what was what was difficult? What did you have to overcome? Okay, so I, you know, I, when I got there, I, um, again, I was pretty clueless. And I had in those days, one didn't interview or meet one's um, potential mentors. So I arrived and I was supposed to be working with Professor Jack Nachmias. He's a luminary figure, a wonderful human being in vision. Um, but he was an older person. He was an albino. And when he talked to you, he liked to, because he couldn't see very well, he'd like to be very close to your face. And I was very young and nervous. And after one meeting with him, I sort of, one meeting, what a child I was really. I ran to um, the brand new assistant professor, uh, woman assistant professor who is studying attention in children. So that's how systematically I chose my pathway into developmental psychology. <laughs> um, but, you know, all of, everything is interesting. Everything is interesting. So I became very, very interested in that. Penn was an amazing place of at that time of University of Pennsylvania of really interesting people and everybody in the department felt they were responsible for you and for your potential. And so it, people just stop you in the hall and tell you papers from having heard what you were thinking about at a brown bag or chat with you about some method. And I found it just very uplifting and rewarding. I'm not the kind of person who runs around having self-doubts. I just do what I do if I enjoy it. And um, and so it was it was wonderful. I can't say that there was um, anything all that struggling. I felt like I had fallen into um, my tribe, the place where I belonged. Um, you know, as a kind of nerdy kid growing up, this was like really felt like home. I found my pack. <laughs> then they were academics. So that was good. So who were the people that you looked up to most, either the ones that you uh, had a personal relationship with or people whose papers you read uh, and were like, wow, this is the kind of thing that I want to do? So the University of Pennsylvania at that time was really, this is in the 70s, uh, 73 to 77, was a time in which um, Noam Chomsky's idea about cognition and the idea that there might be um, sort of innate constraints on mind and really his the, his work on transformational grammar, which was amazing work, you know, gave way to natural language processing and all that stuff, was very much sort of influencing how developmental psychology was thinking about issues and methods had emerged that you could now ask what do babies know and people went around asking what do babies know about everything from algebra to naive physics to whatever. So it was a very exciting time that way, but the people who were there were really into that kind of theoretical view. 
but they were very smart. So people who I would say, it's, I'm just saying this is background because I'm also, well, I'll come to that in a minute, but some people who strongly influenced me were um, certainly uh, Lila Gleitman, certainly Rochelle Gelman, who had a, a real gift or intuitive knowledge for thinking about what babies are like. Burton Rosner, who was in um, uh, perception, and the Herbages, who were in color vision, who didn't have a whole lot to do with what I was doing, but were just always took interest in me and were really, really smart and good thinkers, and I think helped shape the way I think about a lot of problems. Um, so despite the fact that everybody there was kind of uh, Chomsky-ish and looking for what are the core properties of human mind and baby, I never left by sort of wanting a psychophysical thing. So I was always the little bit of the black sheep in the seminars, but this was a place where, of pushing against that, but this was a place where everybody was open-minded and smart. And um, it was good for me. It was really good for me. Um, so. Those are the people at Penn who I was, uh, I would say, most strongly influenced by. But I was also reading a lot of work in, um, in perception and in modeling and in memory modeling. So the kind of work that was at that time you would think of as being mathematical psychology, where people really tried to um, understand. This was before connectionism, where people truly tried to understand, you know, writing lawful like. Uh, relations. And so I would say on the larger end, the scholar who influenced my thinking the most um, outside of the people at Penn at that time was, uh, this might sound odd to you, but it was Wendell Garner. I don't even, even know if you know his work. He was at Yale. He was an experimental adult psychologist of adult attention. Also Ann Treisman. I was a great admirer of Ann Treisman's work. So those are people who I guess where I would think if I would say to myself, geez, if I could be these people, it'd be great. <laughs> yeah. So um, there are very few figures who exert quite as much a gravitational pull as Noam Chomsky, right? Like he has yeah. influenced linguistics, like in, in Howard Gardner's <laughs> book of cognitive science history, just yeah. the entire you know linguistics chapter is dedicated to Chomsky. And um, so I think that's really interesting that, that you were one of the sort of relatively few people who thought to be suspicious of that. What do you think sort of influenced that suspicion? I was not suspicious of his core contribution. His core contribution was transformational grammar. I mean, it is the basis of natural language process. Okay. I mean, probably that's probably his greatest contribution. Okay. I was suspicious of the view of biology, the view of the mind, the idea that there was no hope ever and nor any reason. People like Chomsky, Fodor, those guys, no reason to ever want to connect to the, psycholo to the psychological and to the physiological processes. And it seemed to me from everything I ever knew, having come under the hard sciences and then liking things like psychophysics, that science was about unifying across levels and that kind of break. And I just never was satisfied with demonstrating what, you know, I mean, remember what Chomsky's goal was for linguistics. 
you are supposed to find the properties P. These are going to be, you know, propositions, written as propositions, properties P that defined all natural languages that could be learned in the normal way by humans. Okay? But of course, didn't really care how they really learned it. This was more of a logical question. You know, could I look at all the human languages and then just intuit what the properties P were that defined all, all and only naturally learnable human languages? And it just seemed Look, if you were studying, this is my sort of just grounding in basic science. I kept thinking to myself that if, you know, you would not want a cancer researcher to go after cancer that way, right? Like, we really have to know how it works. Yeah. And I just always had that thought. It was too high, too unconnected. They always talked about it being constrained, but it was those kinds of theories are logically constrained, but they are not constrained by the data. Right. Yeah, no, it's almost more of a philosophical right. uh, sort of claim rather than an empirical one. But uh, but yeah, the other thing is that you mentioned Lila Gleitman, and um, she's another Rummelhart winner, though I believe yeah. you won the prize before she did. So in a sense, you actually did and <laughs> kind of grow up to be Lila Gleitman or some, you know, figure who is, is, is comparable in many ways. So... Uh, yes, Lila Gleitman is one of, honest to God, the most delightful, smartest people on the face of the earth. Yeah. And she's so open-minded and so kind. A few years ago when I published my uh, first uh, my, my, my first paper using wearable sensors, she wrote me this nice, cute little note that that said, you know, you're always doing things I would that it would never occur to me to do and, and ask questions I would never ask. But if I were a young person, I'd come to your lab right now as a postdoc. Wow, uh, that's amazing. <laughs> and we actually agree on almost nothing. Yeah, yeah. Um... But she is a wonderful. She's open-minded. She's smart. She understands both sides of the issues. I have great respect for her. So. Um... You had a, it sounds like a, a decently clear sense of the kind of issues that you were interested in, sort of early on in graduate school. Um, how did you, how did that transition from working on sort of someone else's research agenda to developing your own play out for you? Well, actually at Penn, I developed my own play. Yeah. So what I did read, that look like? Yeah, I, I read Wendell Garner's book, um, what was it called? The structure of experience or something like that. Um, it's a really still amazing book that people should read. And um, I realized that there were stimulus properties or, pro you know, that in the way that we structure experience, it's really a basic kind of question, you know, what is the, it's not that far from psychophysics, sort of what is the co componential structure of, um, experience and I was particularly thinking about visual experience and selective attention and so I started doing uh, research at Penn on young children's uh, development of selective attention as it related to um, the kinds of uh, dimensional and compositional properties of the visual stimuli and that um, I continued that into uh, Indiana University my first grants were around those those topics sort of trying to look at both developmental and adult work and try to 
taking kind of a mathematical psychology approach, if you could write one unifying account of these phenomena across kids and adults, what component parameters of these, you know, this is just classic math psych models, would differ, okay? So I was doing that kind of work and I liked it. And as a part of that, I got closer to word learning because learning to talk about objects and learning the dimensional you know, the names for dimensions and the names for perceptual properties seemed to play a role or predict. So that pulled me a little bit to both language and perception. And then, um, oh, I left out someone who has had a huge influence on me. And then, um, let's see what happened next. Then, uh, at that time, I we discovered uh, Barbara Landau, Susan Jones, and I, the shape bias, which actually it's one of these interesting things. Susan and Barbara were really, really close friends from graduate school. They were in graduate school at Penn together, and Susan joined the department at Indiana. And we sort of became girlfriends. But at that time, Barbara and I hardly agreed on anything. She had been a Gleitman a PhD student. And we used to sit around arguing, and we, fun arguing. And we did the first shape bias experiment out of one of those arguments. And then I was much more interested in the phenomenon because it was much closer to the work I'd done on selective attention. And so I, I really went after that. And let's see, um, then I had, this is after tenure, after the early APA, you know, early career contribution award from APA, I kind of had an existential crisis because it seemed to me that a lot of what we were doing in psychology was going nowhere. Do you know what I mean? That I, I wasn't happy with a lot of the stuff in the literature. I wasn't even all that happy with my own work because I felt that the kind of cognitive explanations where you're really sort of cognitive separated from the sensory processes and separated from the motor processes for whatever you're doing in the task that, you know, is your dependent variable, that there was a real disconnect everywhere. And I felt a little bit like I was, you know, being a careerist, like I can get papers out and published and get grants, but I'm not sure I believe any of this. Right? So that was a little problematic. And then we hired Esther Thielen. And I began to learn much more deeply as she became a colleague of mine at Indiana about motor development, which had already taken a kind of complex system, dynamic systems point of view. I mean, nobody asked the question whether you have, you know, every time you jump, you have to jump differently. It depends on your shoes, the floor, what you're wearing, whether you're going backwards, whether there's a little tilt. If you ever did it the same way every time, you'd fall, okay? So, I mean, you think of Michael Jordan, every time he goes up for a basket, what's great about him is he never does it the same way. He like adapts and adjusts to the situation and well, I mean, his heyday, and adapts to the situation so that he could always get up there and get it in over anybody doing anything. And so you have to think about the solutions, both mathematically and in terms of multi-causal processes and how they constrain each other as being totally different from the kinds of theories that were being put out in um, in cognitive development and uh, more con cognitive side of, but even perception and the more cognitive side of perception. And it just really opened my mind. And that was also a wonderful period of growth for me. Esther and I hired a mathematician together to teach us uh, 
the, the math behind uh, complex systems seriously, you know, not just to play games with it, but to really understand it. And um, so we had this postdoc and was in mathematics who would come and uh, teach us two and Bob Port. I don't know whether you know him, but he has a very interesting mind. He's a linguist, um, now retired. And we would we did this for two semesters every Thursday night, did our homework. It was it was a great growing experience. And that actually changed my whole way of thinking about everything I was doing. Um, that you really have to, that nothing, there's no single causes, that necessary and sufficient conditions, the way we frame questions, just does not characterize human brain, human behavior, almost anything biological. You know, you've got to understand the pathway as a whole, all the components, so you're still doing reduction of science in the sense of isolating components, but you have to, um, you have to think about how they all work together. You have to do the integrative side and you have to do it in time. You can't, you've got to think about how things interact in real time and how that creates changes over developmental time or lifetime. Anyway, I've been going on, so maybe you should say something. So there's, there's a bunch of things that I want to unpack in there. The first one is that, um, so in describing your um, sort of initial insights about dynamic systems, which has you know, been your, uh, I believe, most prominent uh, you know, line of research. Uh, it struck me that that sort of goes back to what you were saying about naming things, right? Because if you name something, as in even just, you know, for example, shooting a basket, you are describing it as one kind of thing that looks, the, the implication being that it's the same thing every time that that event shooting a basket happens. And so it was that kind of, um, you know, inclination to say, well, we're calling all of these things the same thing, but there's really many different things going on here, which seems like that has been, you know, there's something about that insight that seems like that it's been with you uh, in many different forms for a long time. Yeah, I think it, it really, you know, yeah, I think it has does influence me completely in everything I do. And it really comes back to that, um, you know, to the William James kind of quote there about a concept that we're just fooling ourselves. And, and the other thing, when you look at motor behavior, which just makes it really clear, but I'm pretty sure that mathematical insights and uh, my generating sentences right now is exactly the same, um, is that the intelligence, is not in the abstract core property. How are all, you know, basketball shots the same? The intelligence is not there. Okay, we might be able to find some abstract description at some propositional level that is pretty good description. Okay, this would be like Chomsky's transformational grammar, pretty good description, a very high level. But what we actually do in time and where the real intelligence lies is not that. That's the theorist's abstraction. What we really do in time is, is something else much more interesting, much more in the moment adaptive, innovative, um, generative in the real sense of generative. Um, yeah. So, so there's, a, there's another thing that I want to touch on here, which is that so I'm not familiar with uh, Wendell Garner's work, but in, in hearing you describe it, you, you mentioned the title of the book, Structure of Experience. Um, and just sort of guessing about what the time frames like 
uh, would have been. That would have been around the same time that uh, Levi Strauss was proposing structural anthropology and uh, many different kinds of, of structural analyses of social phenomenon and that sort of stuff. Do you think? Do Wendell, you think that? Yeah. No, Wendell is nowhere near there. Okay. <laughs> okay, he's nowhere near there. He yeah. is. He was your really classic experimental psychologist, um, except that he said a few things that that I think were key. I, I probably have the title of his book wrong a okay. little bit. I can find it. But, um, but some of the things he said in that book that always weighed heavily on me, maybe other people just went across it. But he would say when he was describing the stimuli for any experiment, he would say the experimenter defined structure because he always knew that he might not have the right description at the sensory level. Could you imagine if people were doing that in infant cognition where they ask whether babies can do algebra or have naive physics, right? They always describe it from their point of view. You know, the ball comes down and hits a plank and does a baby know that it can't go through and be surprised if it goes through? But that's the experimenter-defined definition of the task. And he always tried to go under it and to test his assumptions about what he was showing in these perceptual selective attention kind of search-like experiments. Um, and so now it makes clear to me why I really, really respected and loved his work. He was a big influence at the time on a lot of people, but I don't know whether everybody saw his contribution the way I did, but that, that whole point that your experimenter-defined dimensions were, were not the whole game, do you know what I mean? that unless you asked what, what they really were, what, what are the properties of these, um, of the stimulus? Absolutely. You know, yeah. So, yeah, that's very anyway, cool. That's, yeah. You know, they say the, um, the best way to get the answer to uh, a, a question is to state the incorrect answer uh, somewhere public, and then everyone will tell you what they think the correct answer is. And having done that with that initial question there, I'm certain that I got a much more interesting answer than if I had actually been correct in my <laughs> initial assessment. So thanks for that. Um, but anyway, so I want to dig into what you described as your sort of uh, personal crisis with, um, was that looking at the the field as a whole and disbelieving the direction that things were going? Or was that, um, you know, you, you mentioned that it was it was also personal. Uh, so what 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 made you sort of lapse into that sense of crisis, and then how did you begin to dig yourself out? I found myself, which I had never never done. Okay, writing papers where, you know, this is what people talk about in the reproducibility and p hacking things, and I don't think I ever did anything deeply dishonest, but where you were trying to cram. a sort of field expected idea into the data. Do you know what I mean? You're just like trying to force it, right? You do the experiment and it sort of fits. And then you do a second experiment and it sort of fits, you know, and you're trying to write it up and you're just sort of like finessing problems. And I felt deeply dishonest. I, I didn't want to do phenomena where I was fighting them. And 
you know, and occasionally you'd be, you'd be to get a paper published, you'd have to add a paragraph that some reviewer wanted that struck you as absolutely nonsense. Do you know what I mean? On you're like saying the data suggests A, B, C, and D, and then you have to write a paragraph that says, I'm going to say this unkindly because I actually have to do this once, but you have to write a paragraph that says, or it could be innate knowledge, right? <laughs> yeah. Do you know what I mean? And it just, I like, I remember thinking like, what am I doing here? Okay. This is not what I thought science was. I don't want to, you know, play games with, with trying to finesse accounts by, you know, weaving stories about how A could be true, even though it's only slightly showing in the data. And I certainly don't want to add paragraphs that seem to come out of nowhere just so I can get my paper published and I can, you know, be successful in the field. And um, I had never up to that point, it was about a, I think I'd gotten to the point where I had had phenomena that were beginning to hold together. Um, and suggest if this is mostly all around the early days of the shape bias had phenomena that were beginning to hold together and interesting, but that they just, in my view, in terms of both the individual differences, the nature of the variability, the kind of task, you change the task a little bit and the performance jumps to some kind of other kinds of solution among children. But of course, I'm supposed to be finding core knowledge that doesn't vary. Um, it, it seemed to me that I was just fighting the data and fighting what Mother Nature was trying to tell me, and I didn't want to do that. And I have to say, motor behavior, thinking about what it takes to put a, you know, put a basketball up, um, just opened my mind, opened my mind. Yeah, so, so you clearly were able to identify that there was something wrong what were the sort of initial steps that you took? Did you go out there and search, like, I have to find a new domain of knowledge to, you know, sort of get me, you know, inspired or, or give me a new perspective? Or did it just sort of fall into your lap? Did, what, what sort Fell of steps did you take? Yeah. Fell on my <laughs> We hired Esther. She came and, you know, she was getting known. And um, uh, so first reading her work on motor development was interesting. And then we hired her, and this is one of the great accidents of life. Um, her husband was a uh, a famous American historian, and he was being hired by Indiana University. And she was, you know, at that point, well known in motor development, but motor development wasn't, you know, out there. People didn't care so much about it. It's like this odd little subfield. And um, we were we hired her as a spousal hire. Okay because the university wanted her husband. It was the best thing we ever did. She's just one of the most great minds, great, great mind. And um, so then she comes and, you know, her lab's down the hall and a lot of talking about motor development and all of a sudden lights are going on to me. And so it just fell in my lap. Another thing I'm that's- not that, I'm not that wise. <laughs> yeah. Another thing that stands out to me is that, um, so when you started to realize that, uh, you got a sense of this missing knowledge in your knowledge base, which was the mathematics of dynamic systems. And then your response to that wasn't just to you know collaborate with people who are ex experts, but you actually sat down uh, and learned the, the hardcore math behind it. And, and not even just as a, a graduate student, you were a professor at that point. So what, what led you to think that that was 
what you needed to do to, um, uh, to, to, to make that progress? Well, we had begun thinking about it and, you know, people would often say it's, uh, you're just using it as a metaphor. And in fact, for development, we didn't at that time have the kind of data, both scale or computational processes or whatever for real data to go beyond metaphor, okay? So the book we wrote is in fact all metaphor. Everybody's criticism, you're just using dynamic systems as a metaphor is absolutely correct. Um, but if we were going to use the metaphor, we thought we ought to um, make sure we really understood the math. And, you know, I'm, I am not capable of being a great theorist in, um, in anything, you know, deeply mathematical. But having spent those years, and, and I don't mean to be arrogant here, but I guess it'll come across. But having spent those years in mathematics and in and, and engineering, I'm not afraid of math, you know what I mean? And I always felt like I could understand anything. That does not mean I could do a world saving proof or anything extraordinary, but that I could understand anything, right? That and I wasn't afraid of differential equations or thinking, you know, or trying to just understand. So all we were looking to was to understand, make sure we really had um, an understanding of the mathematical concepts, that we were not um, simplifying it in our metaphors in the wrong way. So that's all we were really trying to do. But it was great fun. I think that is the farthest possible thing from arrogance that you could actually uh, have. I think that shows the utmost of intellectual humility and putting your, uh, you know, pursuit of the truth above your own hubris and, and confidence in your intuition. So I think that's lovely. Um, and, you know, so you mentioned the, the magic moment of you had uh, brought on Esther as a, as a spousal hire without really setting the intention behind it. I, I'm very fascinated in those sort of magic moments in general uh, where you don't expect something, uh, but it turns out to be one of the most, you know, sort of significant pathway defining events of your life or career. Is there anything else that stands out to you on that level of just, wow, it fell into my lap and I, uh, you know, had no idea that it turned into be such a, an, an important thing? Well, I don't know that I can think of something right off the hand might yeah. come to me. I will tell you that the advice I give everybody, my children, my graduate students, my uh, colleagues, my young colleagues, uh, my postdoc, just make the best local decision, okay? And throughout my career, I've done that. I'm not a ruminator or a warrior. I don't, you know, I just, wherever I am right now, I try to make the best local decision and then you go forward, okay? And then the next point, you make the best local decision. And so I think my whole career is literally just the best local decision. Um, no great wisdom there, although I actually believe that systems that do that end up pretty smart. <laughs> yeah, so along those lines, so that's a, that's a piece of advice that you give to your grad students, postdocs, children, uh, et cetera. What have you found to be your best practices as a mentor, since you have mentored so many students who have gone on to you know, their own successful academic careers? I believe, this is like when you're raising children, I believe in nudging. So people have their own ideas, their own goals. They have the right to kind of go their own way. 
but of course you need to um, help them make the most of it and make smart, good decisions. And so I really do believe in nudging and in, in, you know, like if you had a, you don't tell them to do X, but you just kind of keep suggesting it. I also believe in a lot of meta statements. I, in my lab meetings, I tell people why I think something's important. I tell them, um, I try not to criticize anybody directly, but maybe if I notice that discussions are going sort of too low level or too much like how do we, can we, what's the best way to redo the statistics or there's this new method which is sort of missing what's the contribution, then I'll just, you know, open a lab meeting by saying, you know, let's just think about what science is really about here. It's not about whether, you know, it's not about p-hacking or null hypothesis statistics. It's about discovery. It's about knowing what the big questions are and what the contributions are. So let's talk a little more about that. <laughs> um, but, you know, so kind of this meta statements about what you think ought to happen and nudge it as opposed to criticize it. Nudge it. Yeah. Um, well, one thing that I'm interested to get your take on then is so you've mentioned, you know, p-hacking and the related uh, sort of issues a couple times. And, you know, you also uh, have gone through periods uh, of, of personally being like, wow, I can't, I can't believe what the state of the field is right now. So what do you make of the current sort of issues in psychology with replication and, you know, statistics and all the concerns that are at the sort of forefront of everyone's mind right now. What do you make of those and how do you think those will impact the future of the field? Okay, I think that it's, I think it's mostly ill-founded, okay? And I think that if we're not careful, it could, it will hurt progress. I know this sounds terrible, but I do. I actually think it's, you know, repeating experiments that have been done precisely so that you can show, you can reproduce the exact, the same effect sizes that you can reproduce the phenomenon is only good if the experiment's about something really important. And a lot of what we do is not all that important. So I think a lot, many of these efforts at uh, replication and reproducibility, I don't see how they're going to move the field forward. There are many, many phenomena that even if you could reproduce them over and over again, are not about, they have no face validity. So one of the reproducibility issues, you know, is that phenomenon where you would put a pencil in your mouth and it would make you smile and you would be happier, right? That could not be true in a meaningful way. We all know that. We could fix depression by having putting pencils in people's mouth, right? It's just nonsense, right? So the, anyway, so my, my thought is, is that all this pre-registration, I like open science, all the data should be public. You should tell people why you were doing what you were doing. But I do believe the field should just get rid of null hypothesis statistics. It has nothing to do with scientific discovery or advancement. And it's just a, a stupid thing we as a field put on ourselves. And if the, if the mathematical theory requires it, if we had an idea on Tuesday, we have to set it in stone and can't get smarter or shifted on Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, or so forth as the experiment is running, then there is something wrong. And we need, we need different mathematics. And there are plenty of other approaches to um, measuring the reliability of phenomena. So I'm not a fan at all. I think it's bad. But I don't think it'll hang around. 
Awesome. So uh, I think we will hopefully have time for a couple more questions, and I, I want to. I, I could I could really sit here all all afternoon and, and pepper you with different stuff, but there's a couple other things I want to get to. So first of all, there's a there's a question that I sort of seeded you with ahead of time. Um, right. And uh, so I'd love to know: uh, Can you paint a picture of your mind in three books? I think I can. Okay. I Let's actually gave it a little thought. So my We've already hit on some of these points, actually. I have a couple guesses, you know. I, uh, there's, there's. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, so my first book, I would, I would call it Two Men, okay. Yeah. And one is my father, who, um, you know, he served in World War II in the Navy, and he came home, and he was a pipe fitter in the Navy, and the Navy put him into school with a, a he got an associate degree in engineering. And then he went on, actually, to, with just an associate degree, these are back in the days, to become an expert in nuclear decontamination and actually to uh, lead the entire Portsmouth, New Hampshire Naval Shipyard. He was the uh, non-military head of the shipyard for much of his career. And, but he was a very, very, he was a man who was interested in anything, and he used to just go to auctions, and he would buy... Um, boxes of books and he would pull them out and there were five of us children and he would read them um, out loud to us. And I remember two really, really well. I don't know, maybe I was eight, nine, I don't know. We were, there was just a passel of kids, so it's hard to remember what your age was. But one of them was <laughs> um, Julius Caesar, the, the wars, you know, the, it was the, the Latin version that had been translated into English some textbook that he, or Latin translation that he picked up, and he read that aloud to us night on night for a while. It was just fascinating and memorable, and he always would run to the dictionary or the encyclopedia, no Google in those days, to look up something we didn't know and we asked questions. And the other one I really remember was about bees and um, having, you know, trying to build some nonfiction book he got on uh, how to build your own honeybee hives, and um, that was really interesting too. And so um, he was the sort of first great influence on the idea that you just want to know for knowing's sake, and um, that was good. And the second man who would be in this two-man book is my husband. I got, he's, I'm a widow now, but I, um, I married at 19, and um, so early in all these stories of happening, and this was a man who, before people ever were, absolutely respected everything I tried to achieve. And the only way women of my generation, I used to say this, I don't have to say it anymore, but my generation would succeed is to marry well. And marry well meant marrying a man who didn't have an ego and uh, was willing to support you in whatever you did. And I think those two men played a strong role um, in my life. So that's book one. Book two. I was thinking, and I already talked about this, I would call hiking. Hiking something I do, I like doing a lot and have done um, throughout my whole life. And what I've always liked to do when hiking was to get the ordinance map. This is, remember, I'm old, it's before the GPS days. And you would have the ordinance map and you would hike, but some people would like work really hard to figure out their plan ahead. I never liked doing that. I always just liked taking the ordinance map and so you knew exactly where you were and you could orient yourself and not get lost, but you would just make the best local decision, each point on the path, whatever looked good when you got there, okay? And 
I've had amazing adventures hiking, doing that. And it's again, the, the way I've done my life is just make the best local decision. And then I guess the third book would be complex dynamic systems because now I think of everything from politics to social relations to everything in those terms. And I can visually, I almost would be a visual book because I can see the, the complex swirling pathways that make a typical development, typical development, friendships, success in life, the role of SES and diversity of environments affecting, you know, development that I can see the sort of complexity of it all and that there's no silver bullets. Do you know what I mean? You're not going to have something that's going to show, yes, we can fix the poor environments by one preschool program. Do you know what I mean? And it really, we've got to stop thinking about finding the one good thing that'll work for the problems of the world because it may take a lot of things. So those are my three books. Well, that is an absolutely beautiful answer to that question. Uh, Linda, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to this. It's been a real pleasure for me. Uh, and so interesting uh, to talk to you and, and hear your perspective on all this. So thank you very much. Okay, I enjoyed it greatly. That was my conversation with Linda Smith. I hope you enjoyed. She's an absolutely fascinating person. And I think probably what stands out to me most about this conversation was what she was saying about local decisions. I think that that's just a fantastic way to think about things because I know for me, I can get so caught up in, okay, what is the future going to look like? How do I want this to turn out in the long run? Am I putting myself in a position for things to turn out in the future? And, uh, uh, you know, I think that there's room to, to speculate on that and that you do, you know, it is sometimes very helpful to have that overarching picture there. But at the end of the day, uh, all you have in front of you are local decisions. There, you never are making decisions on this grander scale. It is always something concrete and in front of you and a choice of whether or not you're going to do something. The way my mom always talked about it was that uh, every day you wake up and you're faced with only one option. Are you going to go left uh, or are you going to go right? And I think that that sort of metaphor of, um, you know, looking at your decisions in terms of, okay, well, today I have this limited scope to work with, and the only thing I'm responsible for today is making the best decision that I can on this, and letting all those future decisions and how that's going to play out in the arbitrarily faraway future, uh, it'll take care of itself. And um, so, yeah, that, that was my conversation with... Linda, and I hope that you uh, got something out of it, and I will see you again next week. Thanks for listening.